Hello and welcome to Play On, the Morgan Sports Law podcast. I'm Nick Williams, a barrister at Morgan Sports Law, and I'm joined today by my colleague Judith Fesch, a paralegal at the firm and competitive esports player. In this episode, which will be split into two parts, we will be looking at esports player rights, and a problem that is particularly acute at the lower levels, players and staff not being paid. To help us with that, we are joined by three special guests. Our first guest is Dom Sacco. Dom is the founder of Esports News UK and a leading light in esports journalism. Our second guest is Josh Ferno. Josh is a player agent at ICM Stella Esports, a newly formed division of the world-renowned football agency ICM Stella. Our third guest is Alex Wise, an analyst and academy head coach at Nordvind Gaming in Oslo. In the first part of this episode, we will be primarily looking at the events that unfolded at Munster Rugby Gaming last year. If you are unfamiliar with what happened, we highly recommend that you read Dom's article on it beforehand, a link to which we will put in the description. The events at Munster are something that Josh and Alex have first-hand experience of, having both been employed by it at the time. We should make clear that the Munster that we will be discussing is the entity that was run by Feeling Gaming, not the new team with the same name that has now been launched. Thank you all for joining us, and let's move straight to the first question. In the last few months alone, and despite the continued boom of the esports industry, two UK orgs, Munster and Hive Central, have gone bust. In the lead up to that, some employees went unpaid for months, and I understand some were never paid at all. Josh, you witnessed firsthand what happened at Munster. What went wrong? Was it just mismanagement by Kieran Welsh, or something more sinister? felt like it started as mismanagement, and I think in the Munster case, it very much was initially mismanagement, which turned very quickly into, I guess, something more sinister in the in the sense of kind of deceit or lots of false promises that at the time, I guess, uh, the person in question knew couldn't be upheld or was hoping they might be able to be upheld, but never were able to. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I can't speak too much on the Hive case just because I don't know the full ins and outs. But on the Munster case, I think it started with best wishes and intentions and perhaps a clear lack of experience in the field knowing where revenue streams were going to come from and and how long they may take these never came to fruition and as a result lies kind of began to compound and drag out throughout the duration and we ended up in a in the situation that we faced alex does that match with your view yeah i mean i can echo that i think the viewpoint i have is that i don't think the intentions at all begin with a senator i don't think that started occurring at any point in the split to be honest it was more so a case of mismanagement and then that paired with you know severe inexperience led to him not knowing how to handle the situation and instead of asking for help which was pushed by several members of the organization including john who was our performance coach he basically you know didn't accept the help and then that led to just more lies being thrown our way and we we didn't have a clue what was going on within two months no, we we were trying to, with our best intentions, help the the lack of an experience. John and I had worked at, a, a, I guess, a quote unquote higher level, I suppose, of organization that had been run very well in XL Esports. And we'd worked together there before we went to Munster. So when we went to Munster, we knew it was a, a kind of startup. Obviously, Munster Rugby is a huge European rugby club. And as a result, we were we were very confident in their ability. But we were kind of... I guess, misled on their involvement in the project. And in reality, it was very much a bedroom esports org with a big rugby club's team attached, the team name attached. And I I guess that lured us into a bit of a false sense of security. And I don't think that was, again, 
I don't think that was sinister initially. I think perhaps the deal was in the first place wasn't a great deal for esports and great for what was feeling gaming. And I think a lot of that became off like again a lot of inexperience. He got really excited that uh, Munster Rugby was very interested in being part of the project, and due to that, just basically the deal was accept a license name over actually any support and provided a lot of promises that could never actually be upheld. Josh, had Feeling Gaming existed for long before this happened or was it something that Kieran set up solely for the purpose of working with Munster? Mm, they had. They, they'd been around for a couple of years in, in UK League of Legends. I think they may have had a Hearthstone team as well, but they had only operated on a very small scale. We're talking kind of perhaps very small part-time wages. I had actually worked with them for a split prior to Munster and everything at that point on a very much smaller scale team-wise and my payment-wise was upheld. So I saw no reason at that point to to not believe what we were being told and ultimately, yeah, didn't work. Those promises weren't fulfilled. Josh, you mentioned deceit and false promises earlier. Can you tell us a bit about what actually happened? The, the very basis in the sense of the wages. This is what we we agreed to. We were promised contracts were on their way, and then when followed up multiple times, week after week after week, they're still on the way. Munsters that we heard stuff like Munsters lawyers or, or Munsters people that are writing these these contracts are, are being really slow. COVID, various things about COVID, and all of which I can't say were false. I mean, I don't know exactly what was occurring. What I do know is that the end result was. I, I mean, I, I started in in April. I got a final contract draft in like June or something. And even then, it was obviously so BTEC in the sense of some of our contracts for, for different staff members had like the, the other staff members' name on them. The addresses were just like England. It was very like budget as if like a 12 year old had written my contract almost. And it just had no essence of anything professional about it at all, which obviously raised massive alarm bells. And started the ball rolling on, okay, well, this is not what we <laughs> signed up for. Alex, was there anything that raised alarm bells for you or something that people should look out for when dealing with these kinds of orgs? A future lesson would be if there is like a, an external company involved in the process and you're not in touch with that company, just get in touch and, you know, basically ask for a quick summary of the details. Because for us, there was a lot of lies between what Phelan was saying Munster was getting involved in and what actually Munster was actually getting involved in. And I think the biggest problem, to be honest, was just the continued shifting of what was being told to us. If it was just one continuous message that we were receiving, then I think we would have cottoned on to the fact that it was, you know, not a delay and more so just uh, something not happening. But with the continuous lies and the whole, you know, situation last year of COVID going on and all these different problems around the world, like it somewhat was believable for the first month or two, not maybe two, but maybe month and a, a bit. And then after that, it kind of, I mean, everyone's suspicions rocketed through the roof pretty much. And we just constantly have, like, kept having meetings about what was going on. But obviously, you don't want to have that situation, you know, a month and a half in. So I think the big thing is if there are external you know, factors involved, just find out what those external factors are from the source rather than from the person that's telling you. Yeah, I think it really is, Alex said, detailing what the relationship between the parties that are leading the project are. We, we really did not know. The, we, we knew from Phelan's side what he told us the relationship was between Munster and Phelan. This happened to just not 
be complete falsified. Really, it was just a name that was given to Feeling Gaming. We believed there was going to be financial support. We were going to have the ability in a kind of COVID restriction-free world where we could actually go over to Ireland and, and be part of an offline project. We basically set everything up as if this was going to be a full-time esports project, working with Munster Rugby, utilizing some of their facilities, utilizing their current commercial deals, which would then extend to the esports side. Uh, and ultimately, we're left with nothing but a name from Munster. Uh, I mean, would have been very happy to just know that that was the case in the first place. So yeah, I think Alex is absolutely right. Knowing that relationship right from the off, very transparently, would have given us a, a much clearer idea of what we were dealing with. Dom, you covered what went on at both Munster and Hive Central. Do you have any insight you can share on why those orgs ran into issues? Was it just an experience and overpromising? What else might be going on that causes situations like this to occur? Well, first of all, at the sort of amateur and semi-pro level, this thing can be quite common, unfortunately. I'd say Munster was a sort of a higher level than that typical amateur sort of organisations that we see in League of Legends or UK esports, UK and Ireland esports, because Feeling had the licensing deal with Munster Rugby Gaming. They had some big players like Max Law. In an industry where most of the revenues come from sponsorships, especially for team organisations like this, and the fact that Munster or Feeling operating as Munster under a licensing deal didn't have a single sponsorship agreement, as I understand it, not one that was fully signed and on board, that's pretty shocking, to be honest. So if they're not pulling revenues in, how are people going to get paid? So that's, for me, that was the big error. That is something one. that we were lied about as well too. We we were very they were very clear that there was certain deals that were occurring with very big various companies that, that were currently with Munster, the likes of the Bank of Ireland and various other ones that we were told the deal is like done as good as. And I mean, I know very much that a deal is never done until it's done, but uh from the way that we were told that it was very clear that this was a revenue stream for Munster Rugby Gaming, and as a result it made it more believable that funds could be raised to pay wages. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, I think in answer to your question, Nick, it is a mix of those things. I think uh, other than you saying inexperience or something more sinister, I think it might have just been incompetence, to be honest, the impression I got from feeling gaming, operating as Monster Rugby Gaming. I've got a feeling they might have been a bit in over their heads, the management and so on there. It's up until that point, they'd been operating at a sort of amateur level in UK and Ireland League of Legends. And all of a sudden they were with Munster Rugby Gaming in the NLC, which was still quite new at the time, sort of Northern Europe, upper tier of League of Legends, just below that sort of top level of the LEC in Europe. Yeah, so I'll just say on Munster as well, I do think there was deception there and lies. I'd heard other bits and pieces and some people said to me, oh, I don't think there was any maliciousness involved, Dom. But still, at the end of the day, there was incompetence and covering up. And I think all of this coming out now and being highlighted will help educate other people and tell other aspiring organisation owners that that's not right. You know, it's not the right way to go about things. As for Hive Central, I'd say, yeah, they're, they're more of a lower tier organisation participating in the UK EL, which is lower tier of UK and Ireland League of Legends. I think for them, it's more of poor communication between the organisation and the players So from both ends. I don't think there was maliciousness here. There were contracts 
agreed with the players. What happened was, this is what, so one of their Rainbow Six Siege players claimed that him and his teammates weren't paid by the organisation. But then the organisation said the contracts were sent. They only received four player contracts and one coach contract back. And they said that that meant it was an incomplete roster. They needed five players, right, in Rainbow Six. And because it was an incomplete roster, that there was a part of the contract that said it's void. If, if, if there isn't a full roster that signed the contracts, then the organisation doesn't have to pay. They'll only pay when there's a full roster. They did give, a, I think, a 25% payment to the players as a gesture of goodwill, but that wasn't contractually required. That's what I understand. So it sounds like it's a dispute between the players and the organisation. This happens now and then. But there should have been better communication from the off. And the organisation implied that, that the players or the coach were a little bit difficult to deal with when then they shouldn't have entered into the partnership with them to begin with. So we are where we're at with, uh, with that one. Unfortunately, it does happen every now and then. Not as much as it used to. I think things are improving. I think that comes down to poor communication for me. Yeah, I've seen certainly excerpts of the Hive contract. And I mean, they, they're definitely not drafted by a lawyer, if I can put it, <laughs> put it politely. I mean, both Munster and Hive are said to have used contracts that haven't been reviewed by lawyers. Now, for a professional sports team like Munster, for example, that would be almost unthinkable. Why, Josh, do you think that happens so frequently in esports? I think there's some assumptions. So, for instance, I think Munster assumed getting into esports taking on someone to effectively run their esports division that this kind of mini company or whatever would would be professional would be vetted would have had some experience to get to where they are in esports i mean i'm sure they went to munster and said look we're tier one irish organization in esports which they were they were the number one irish team in esports and that they that's the standard at present to be honest that's the sad thing i mean ultimately anyone has the ability to just go like I, I could just make up a random name and say this is my esports organization now and get five players to join me for the ride uh, and there doesn't need to be uh, at present uh, there's not much vetting going on to ensure that these companies are run well to ensure that there's revenue streams in place to ensure that actually the promises that they make can can be fulfilled so there's a lot of this. I think from the the sports team and then the getting involved with the these organisations, it's an assumption that they run well and and they're just not a lot of the time. And Munster have realised now that actually they're better off doing this the way they would do their own rugby projects, and that's on a very professional basis, following protocol, being very clear about the steps that they need to take to undergo whatever they're doing. And now they're really kind of they, they've taken two relegations to and lost a team to drop right down to the bottom league of kind of grassroots UK League of Legends in the UK and to build themselves up again doing things the way that they would try and do things in their industry. But uh, yeah, I mean, esports being such a new industry, there's a lot of weeding that needs to be done to get rid of as much of the amateur hour as we see. And I think amateur hour is fine while it remains there, but you can't pass amateur hour off as professional and then ultimately try and be a top tier organization without the, the the absolute basics or any policies in place or any procedures or anything in place and just making it up as you go. I'd like to add that I think there's a, a few key factors in why it happens so frequently. 
I think some of it is on the organization side and some of it is on the, the, the players or the, you know, the coaching staff side. And from the organization side, I think they're, I mean, somewhat of a uh, advantage is the wrong way of putting it, but they have the ability to somewhat pressure players and coaches into signing contracts within a limited time frame, just based off of how the current ecosystem works in esports. And by that, I mean, there's a lot of teams which are signing rosters for either one split or one year. And the off season between those splits is often quite short and the lead up is quite jumpy with the rosters that they're going through. And so players often end up not even signing a contract before they decide on a roster, essentially. So they decide on a roster sometimes and then get a contract. And there can be a lot of you know problems occurring in between those spots. And I think another thing on the, the player's side is that a lot of these players are very young and don't have business experience. And when you don't have business experience or, you know, if you've never had a contract before, how do you, how do you know what a good contract is, you know? So a lot of these players are either, you know, talking to friends or other young people about whether the contract's good or not. And they also don't have the best idea of what's going on. Also, um, Nick, it seems to be, you know, I hear that some of these contracts get copied and pasted or they find Organizers might find templates online and just tweak them very slightly without understanding the intricacies. You know, I have a consultancy in esports. Yes, it was quite expensive to get an NDA drafted for any clients I bring on board, but I knew I had to do it because I'm not a legal expert. And, you know, I think orgs where they can, because there aren't many margins in esports, you know, they're doing it for brand exposure, for fun a lot of the time, for bragging rights. Can they try and win this tournament? They'll try and save as much money as possible, and if they if that means they don't have to spend whatever three four figures on a proper contract being drafted, they'll cut corners and use that money to pay players instead, because there is a you know there's a it's still lack of funding at the lower tier level. But publishers like Right Games have done a lot to uh, better support teams over the years. You know, there's good prize pools and support packages available to the different esports organizations now but yeah it's it comes down to lack of money at the low level you don't see this at the higher level of esports really contracts are better and firmer with the likes of xl esports and that upper tier there's much more regulations by the by the tournament organizers by the likes of riot games there's much more involvement at that level in which basically enforces policies and procedures that you that the organizations need to follow and following on from Alex's point, really, the competitive nature of what you do, and, and to be honest, at, at amateur level, especially in the UK, there's not much money in it anyway for the most part. So it's not like you're, you're if someone's going to lose two, 300 quid, that they're often fine to just continue playing because they, they love playing, right? They, they were Lots of these people came from, kind of were forged in the, you're a volunteer player, you do it as a hobby. As I was coaching, I, I mean, I, I spent years coaching voluntary before I was paid any money to do it. and in a normal job last year doing that same thing i'd have walked out the, the the day my payment was not made on the on the day that we were promised but normally i continued working the entire entirety of the split and uh, convinced or i mean i gave the option to the players that you can down tools there's no pressure on you to play you don't have to play and the, their response was we want to play we want to get better we, we we're happy to play for you I, I don't want us to really be associated with with Monster rugby gaming's name because they're not doing anything for us why should we do anything for them and represent them but we want to get better and we want opportunities to to go to somewhere else next split. Uh, and that, that's ultimately what it was. They had a they had a, a one split deal, was hoping to be extended should everything go well. It didn't. But ultimately, these players wanted to prove to the rest of Europe, anyone who's watching the NLC, actually, 
we're good players, pick us up for next split. Because if they didn't show that, that split, they may not have a job next split either. There, there may have been no offers on the table for them to go anywhere else. And one of our coaches, John Ellis, actually did down tools and said, look, I'm not working if this is going to be the case. If I'm not going to get paid, if the contractual obligations on Monster Rugby Gaming side are not met, I'm actually not going to work. We all had that option. We all kind of stuck together for the, for. I mean, I, I felt that I couldn't let the players just want to get better and me not fulfill my role of actually helping them get there. I felt an obligation to those players and felt no obligations to Munster Rugby Gaming at that time, but felt very much that I had a responsibility to fulfill as someone who's been in the industry a bit longer, a bit more experience that I can best support them through what they, what was happening. All the financial situations were different. I actually took uh, the, the manager of the team into my house and he lived with me for the duration. And partly part of that was because he actually didn't have money to live anywhere. So <laughs> he lived with me for that duration. We did, did bind together, to be honest. Um, the likes of Alex, the likes of the, the manager, the likes of our performance coach, the main team and the academy team. There's 10 players there. Uh, and we created a, a really good bond in which we wanted to get to where we wanted to get to. But uh, ultimately, the, there's a pressure for players to to want to continue playing regardless of regardless of the contractual obligations not being met. Has everyone now been paid or is money still owing to people? What's the situation now? Still some owing. I mean, there, there were various things throughout the time that we've kind of like wavered, I guess. So for instance, partway through the split before we were actually paid, probably a good couple of months before we were paid, lots of people were given a, a quote unquote, this is a bonus for waiting so long for your payment. We're so sorry it's been so long, but... We're going to give you just a, a, a swift payment through PayPal to just t- keep you ticking over until we actually get this payment problem sorted. That, that's effectively the message that was conveyed. What occurred is that we got that payment. Then when it came to payment time, they said, yeah, but you already got this amount of money, so that could be taken out of the payment you're owed. That, that got taken out. So I, I don't know exactly, and I can't speak for everyone. This is a, probably a 20-man project or 20-person 20 20 in terms of player and staff project, so I can't talk for everybody's situation. But I have been informed that there are players that didn't get complete full amount and there are at least one staff member that I know of that didn't get a penny of the money that he was owed. Although these are both orgs operating towards the low end of esports, they were competing in tournaments that run by DreamHack, which has a huge amount of experience running competitions. Do you think that tournament organisers should be doing more to vet the financial stability of orgs that compete in events they run? Perhaps, Julia, you can lead on this one. Yeah, sure. So... Players in leagues such as UKLC or NLC, they are all, or in most, most circumstances, getting paid. They are not uh, playing for free. So there should be some sort of regulational check to ensure that esports organizations do have enough money to pay them. Now, the question is how to do it. So one of the solutions could be for the tournament org- organizer to ask esports organization for some sort of minimum assets to show that they have it so that they can pay the players. Now that could be done in different ways. One could be some basic salary. So let's say that the tournament organizer is like, okay, if you want to take part in my league, you need to pay players. This is the basic salary. If the players are getting paid, this is basic salary. And based on that, you could say, okay, you need to have this amount of assets to be able to take part. It's like an added up salary of, of players and stuff. Another problem is that usually players are getting paid different amounts and staff is getting paid differently. So it could be either based on basic payments or you could have 
the amount of asset that you need to show that you have would be based on the amounts that you actually say you're going to pay. But that again would have to all be very, very confidential so that poaching players wouldn't be easy. But then again, franchise is also playing a really important role in esports. Like we can see franchise on the highest level where you have to pay certain amounts of money to be able to get the spots. But that doesn't again mean that esports organizations that actually are able to pay in to take part in the tournaments have enough money or are willing to pay. Like we saw with Astralis, which is um, an esports organization taking part in LEC, which is the highest competition in League of Legends, one of the highest competitions in League of Legends. And they were actually missing salary payments. And so they were fined by Riot Games. But at the end, you, you need to ask yourself this question, whether this sort of obligations and this sort of check should be based on the tournament organizers or there should be some other body in place. The stuff like DreamHack have a participation agreement with the, the teams and the teams have to fulfill that participation agreement. That agreement often doesn't extend to the deal between the, the organization and the player. It's just well, the obligations that the organization has to fulfill to be in the league a lot of the time. Maybe Julia's right. Maybe there needs to be more done by mm-hmm. the tournament organizer to kind of vet the the connection between the the organizations and the players that they take on. They often view that as like the org's own deals and their own proceedings, and that's nothing to do with the tournament organizer a lot of the time. To be honest, we reached out at length multiple times throughout this process throughout the monster process for support from DreamHack. And we, we sent multiple emails. We have multiple meetings with DreamHack seeking counsel. And while they were supportive in those meetings, ultimately, my personal view is, is that they got this wrong, that this whole, the, the way they dealt with this, in the sense of they ultimately decided after all that went on that monster rugby would be now separated from feeling gaming Monster Rugby would be removed completely and that Phelan Gaming would be given a spot in the UKLC. Ultimately, Phelan went into administration, whatever, and they, they left or whatever the process was there. But to everybody that was involved in that project, it was baffling that that could be the outcome of, of nine months of turmoil, effectively. That the outcome from the tournament, tournament organizer's point of view was that, yes, Phelan would have to take a one relegation from the NLC down to the UKLC for for mismanagement is it was kind of classed. But ultimately, you've just had 20 people with, live without their income for the last nine months. I mean, you can call it whatever you want, but ultimately these people have been struggling uh, and you've kind of uh, prohibited certain players' careers because ultimately we look that for how good the players were and the staff team, we, we underperformed. Right? And we underperformed because nobody had the motivation to actually work for an organization that wouldn't uphold a single promise that was made. Uh, and there's a lot of damage done throughout that period of time, both kind of monetary value and co- kind of potential career value. So while they did support us in the meetings and while they were willing to listen, the outcome of their decision felt completely the opposite to me to what, what I believe. I mean, we, we were very tr- clear, transparent. We presented them with clear dates, clear evidence of what had been said, screenshots of messages that had been sent. We presented the versions of our contracts that, that we'd been been sent. Uh, and to me, I, I feel like the outcome from the support that we got from the tournament organizer, while in best wishes, felt really lackluster, I think. What would you have liked to have seen from them, Josh, done differently? 
I'd have liked them to put a hard deadline on fulfilling the promises that they had clearly made in the sense of like, if you're not paying your players, you will be removed from the league or something like this. Bring up a lower team, like uh, and, a team that would have been... You yeah, know, so, yeah. So, so what the UKL's done with Hive, right, is they allowed the players continue playing under a non-organisation name and until an organisation oh, yeah, could yeah, take on sense. those players. Yeah, um, yeah. They, they've now turned into Lucent Gaming, but they, they've continued. They've worked hard this split. Those players, those players and that coach, regardless of whatever's happened, they've worked hard, they've got into playoffs mm. and now have been taken on by another organisation. The hard bit is where... That previous outstanding deal that kind of Phelan had with the players, that that amount of salary, can you force another organization to pay to make that same deal with the players? Not really. This is a very gray area, but I really do think that Phelan were almost rewarded for the situation that occurred. <laughs> they did take mm. a relegation, but they were given a spot and Munster were almost kicked out. We nearly lost a massive traditional sports team that actually has kind of professional core values uh, amongst it. We nearly almost removed them from esports altogether through the way it was dealt with mm. and I, I it's only through Munster's kind of real will to succeed in this scene that they've actually gone okay well we'll drop three divisions reapply for the UKL build a new team and show that we can run it by ourselves that they actually got into a league at all and only actually Phelan's massive downfall that they went into administration as to why they're not currently playing in the UKLC and to me that felt a very poor outcome the mismanagement of feeling and actually not Munster's core problem. I'd just like to add, I know we've somewhat strayed away from the, uh, the topic you're on, but on the note of uh, DreamHack, I think something that's important to think about is that they have a lot of tournaments they're taking part in and running, and it's not quite as simple as them just you know having complete uh, vetting over every single organization and making sure every single player is being paid and, well, not only being paid, but being kept after and everything's being promised fully. And the reason I say that is because at the end of the day, this is you know business and the ability to invest in staff to make sure every league is running perfectly somewhat comes back from what revenue they're getting from the leagues. And especially in the lower divisions, like UKLC and UKEL, these are not massively profitable leagues that are giving them a large revenue. And so it's it's a very difficult thing, especially in the infancy of esports, to you know say businesses should just have you know a perfect eye on these teams. It's not quite that simple in reality. That concludes part one of this two-part podcast on esports player rights. We hope that you will join us in part two, where we will carry on the conversation. In the meantime, for analysis and articles on athletes' rights issues, please go to our website, www.morgansl.com. If you are interested in joining our mailing list, or there are any topics that you would like to see addressed in a future podcasts, please email us, podcasts at morgansl.com. Finally, please connect with us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram and Facebook for articles, updates and news. We hope that you enjoyed listening and will join us for future episodes of Play On.